Assalamu alaikum. Peace and blessings to our listeners out there. Welcome to Monday's edition of the Drive Time Show. Uh, you're here live with myself, Talib Man, and Imam Usman Manan. So uh, a, a big welcome to Usman Manan because he's, he's jumped ranks, I believe. He's coming <laughs> from the breakfast show. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, it's my first time on the Drive Time. Thank you for the, for the warm welcome. Well, we were just talking just off air, and uh, you know, I'm sure as we were doing. Uh, Isha Namaz last night. Uh, Storm Isha was blowing through. So I hope and pray that uh, all our listeners were safe uh, and sound last night. But uh, I, I do remember, uh, I think around about 8 o'clock, it was r- really around about that time, Isha Namaz, mm. that uh, the storm was blowing through here in London anyway. And I think uh, it was hitting kind of a, uh, speeds of up to about 90 miles an hour further up north. So... Um, yeah, I hope everyone's safe uh, and sound out there. But that's blown through. Mm. And, and for uh, those who don't know, Isha is uh, is uh, the evening prayer for exactly. the for the Muslims. Yep. And uh, it was around that time you were saying. So yeah. I was, I was, was around that jokingly time. saying then they started naming the storms after our prayers. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think that is what the mail office is doing. But I think it's it's more. Uh, in, in yeah. yeah, in alphabetical sequence, yeah. So they must be running out of names. more more uh, Western names, and now they're they're just picking them. But uh, yeah, we hope and pray that everyone's uh, safe after that storm's blown through. Um, as is normal on a drive time show, we deal with quite contemporary subjects and uh, quite thought provoking subjects. So uh, and, and today we've got two of them. Our first hour, what we'll be talking about, uh, uh, Usman. First hour will be about uh, uh, Palestine mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, in general, but also um, we'll be we'll be discussing the topic whether how long will this injustice continue, mm-hmm. and uh, I mean how how long will will it take basically? Yeah, how far like, can we go as humans? Yeah, I mean that's the thing. It's gone. I mean, it's 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 just a continuation, and I, I think we're going to look further into it. We'll look at the historical background of this conflict. Uh, in the land of Palestine, mm-hmm. uh, between uh, the state of Israel and you know the Palestine uh, or the Palestinians that live in that area, um, and yeah, we'll we'll look at the history of that. But uh, I mean, you know, no one's got an answer really because no one's really, in terms of when I say no one, uh, world leaders out there or the superpowers are able to influence uh, you know, the major protagonists out there which is Israel so definitely yeah yeah I so mean, it's, it's, since the beginning I think it was only took a couple of days mm-hmm. for people to understand that this is wrong yeah uh, even that okay the attack on October the 7th was wrong mm-hmm. and after that what what happened was what well, is just getting worse and worse and yeah. that's why people are you know uh, I, I kind of say like they the the, the Jew uh, sorry the um, Israel's mm-hmm. Israel's has overshadowed what happened on October the seventh? Mm. They, that its significance is going down, mm-hmm. and it's being washed away because of well, their I think, actions. I, I think it's um, really more so. I, I, I agree with you there, Usman. It's maybe not their significance or their rationale for uh, this is this is actually retaliation. I mean, what? How much retaliation is um, equal? To what they was meted out on October the seventh, but anyway, we'll be looking further into that. And what do we have for our second hour? So, second hour, we will uh, um, talk about the life of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, mm-hmm. peace be upon him, and we will show some examples from his life. 
uh, and uh, more specifically, we are talking about his uh, his childhood mm-hmm. and so the time from his birth uh, or maybe a little bit before his birth mm-hmm. until uh, he received his first revelation and mm-hmm. the start of his prophethood. Mm-hmm. So that's a uh, there's a lot of uh, we will see a lot of similarities how we can apply the the example of the Holy Prophet which he had which he has shown mm-hmm. in today's uh, life and mm-hmm. today's and age. We'll, yeah, we'll see the factors which actually. I suppose singled him out even at that young age and prior to you know him becoming um the person that he was and becoming the holy prophet peace and blessings be upon him uh and the the factors that molded him um and the attributes that you could see or people around him and his companions mm. could see way before way before he took the mantle of prophethood. Yes. But we'll, we'll, Not just his companions, there's statements, we'll talk about it later, of mm-hmm. his enemies. Yeah. That they were speechless uh, when, when asked that, has this man ever lied? Yeah. They were speechless. They said, yeah. no, I can't say it. Yeah, you he can't. I lied. mean, you would want to, yeah. but you just can't. So we'll be delving t- uh, into the early life of the Holy Prophet, uh, peace and blessings be upon him, uh, in the second hour. But without further ado, we're going to go straight into Palestine. Now, the war on Palestine has been ongoing for three months, or this, I should say, correct myself, actually, the most recent conflict, yes. right, has been ongoing for three months and has opened the eyes of many across the world to the horrors which are not only taking place in present time, but the actual destruction of Palestine uh, or you know that area, that region has been facing uh, for decades. Uh, as of the 17th of January, at least 24,620 Palestinians are reportedly killed in the Gaza Strip since the start of these most recent hostilities. Um, and, you know, of that 2,600, uh, sorry, 24,620, up to 70% are reportedly uh, women and children. Uh, and, you know, we've seen uh, since hundreds of deaths daily. Uh, it's a duty yeah. of every single one of us to stand up for what is right and to advocate for justice, especially those world leaders in power who can help stop the injustices taking uh, taking place. Now, there's a chapter or a verse in the Holy Quran, and this is uh, in chapter 4, verse 136. O ye who believe, be strict in observing justice and be witnesses for Allah, even though it be against yourselves or against parents and kindred, whether he be rich or poor, Allah is more regardful of them both than you are. Therefore, follow not low desires so that you may be able to act equitably. And if you conceal the truth or evade it, then remember that Allah is well aware of what you do. So, you know, Usman. Yeah, very strong admonishment uh, yeah, and, exactly. and the emphasis that even if you if your statement your witness goes against your own parents your, your own your bloodline kindred, yeah, your own your blood, kid, yeah. I mean who would want to you know uh, ever say anything um, against uh, maybe a child who mm. has committed something wrong their parents did something wrong uh, but to be, to be honest it's not such a such a crazy you know um uh, commandment of God Almighty. Uh, we no, do just, see examples. Every just be, day. just be straight. Just be fair. Yeah, really, I'm, isn't it? I'm, I'm, I was, I was going to say that even among non-Muslims, so f- for those who this is not the commandment directly at, but even they uh, understand that justice has to be upheld. And we mm-hmm. see cases where 
uh, parents do go against their children and children mm-hmm. go against their parents. Uh, but but the point being here is that the the emphasis of justice is so great mm-hmm. that uh, even if you know if your loved ones, um, mm-hmm. y- you have to uh, uh, yeah are involved in wrongdoings. Right? Yeah, you and must speak against them. Yeah, and you know if we extrapolate this out into uh, or yes, if we extrapolate this into what we're talking about today, Palestine, yeah. then you know we can see the injustice which is happening. Even um, the so well the media that we get we can see um the devastation which is wrought upon the gaza currently the mm. you know, that area of palestine and it's it's a wasteland i mean Definitely. what I mean, what, what, there's, what there's justice a, is there so many uh, even uh, um so many uh, people government officials are saying that uh, we 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 are thinking or some people are thinking about what's what we're going to do to gaza mm. after this war and they're saying that what Gaza are you talking about? After yeah, you just war, have to rebuild it, Gaza. right? You won't be Gaza. You might yeah. as well change the name. So, I mean, um, yeah, Osman, what? Uh, you know, let's let's go into a brief history of uh, of Palestine, so we have some um, context as to what's happening there currently. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, if you go back maybe a century ago, in 1922, mm-hmm. the League of Nations accepted the British mandate to support the establishment. Uh, in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people, which was allowed large-scale immigration of uh, Jewish people. Uh, The people of Palestine protested against this, which led to violence and terrorism from both sides. And, uh, you know, another stage of of, um, conflict started. Mm -hmm. In 1947, (coughs) the UN attempts to resolve this conflict with a partition plan to separate Palestine into two states. Uh, and even today we talk about the two-state solution sometimes. Mm-hmm. And the the state of Israel was officially created. And then this led to uh, a, a massacre of many Palestinians while occupying the Gaza Strip, the West Bank. And in 1967, the UN attempt, attempted to resolve the conflict by calling on Israel to withdraw from territories occupied in Gaza and the West Bank. But the people of Palestine continued to live under Israel's military rule while killing those opposing. Then in 1987, there was a ma- mass uh, uprising against the Israel occupation in the occupied Palestine territory, which results in many Palestinian uh, deaths by Israel forces. Mm-hmm. In 2000, Israel started to construct a West Bank separation wall. And mm-hmm. uh, in, though in 2005, Israel withdrew its settlers and troops from Gaza, it retained control over their borders, mm-hmm. uh, seashore and airspace. I mean, even during that time, uh, I was like uh, looking at uh, the, the history and the timeline, and there have been um, efforts mm. uh, on the Israeli part as well to uh, have some peace in that uh, in that region. But even their own uh, prime minister Yipsak, uh, Yipsak Rabin, he was. Uh, I'm just looking now. He was. Assassinated in November uh, on November the fourth, nineteen ninety-five, and he he was assassinated, and it was by a far right-wing Israeli, and the whole being uh, the whole, and most probably, if you look historically, the most successful political assassination, because uh, it was Rabin who was pushing forward the two-state solution to settle this. And ever since, there's never been really any um, kind of like comeback or 
poss- in, in the sense of from the Israeli side to yeah, look it's, towards it's quite a two side. The yeah. most most recent news, uh, the, the um, Prime Minister Netanyahu is saying that mm-hmm. there will be no two, yeah, two exactly. state solution. It's, it's gone from one extreme. Yeah. Well, actually, it's just gone to one extreme now. Yeah. It's just that, you know what, We've, we recognize that we have uh, the state of Israel, but we refuse to recognize that there will be a state of Palestine. Yeah. But uh, to talk more regarding this topic, we're joined by our first guest of the day, uh, and we're joined by Usman Dean. And Usman Dean is head of Disaster Relief Humanity First UK. And uh, Usman has been actually, in fact, we're going to find out exactly what the situation is on, you know, in that area. Assalamualaikum, peace and blessings be upon you, Usman. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show. Peace and blessings to you as well, and thank you for having me. Well, um, we are talking about, uh, you know, a very emotional topic, right, uh, for a lot of people, uh, not just in this country, but around the world. And this is Palestine. I mean, you, you know, having recently returned as part of one of the first British NGOs to enter uh, and even to be allowed to enter uh, Gaza. I mean, what is the situation on the ground like there? Yes. So so the magnitude of the disaster is unprecedented. Right? I mean, mm-hmm. you've spoken about some of the conditions um, and, and the situation there. We, we um, is it's a. Uh, Particularly, I mean, it's the conditions are unbearable. The stories are horrific and heartbreaking. Um, when we were there speaking to people, people's aspirations are, are very much limited in time. People are not thinking about, you know, what life would look like in a week's time, let alone some time in the future. It's just survival. Uh, it's literally survival. Mm. Uh, or, you know, can they get their hands on 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 a, on a bit of bread? Unfortunately, just that's mm. just as much as they can afford to think about um, apart from remaining safe from you know the aerial bombing um, we heard accounts uh, we, we were there as part of uh, you know the, the teams here in the UK um, to do an assessment of the humanitarian needs um, and they're immense I mean I could I could literally uh, tell you so many accounts of the sufferings there um, and, and the humanitarian needs there but um, you know, we, we saw uh, young pregnant women um, who had no surviving families and they were abandoned by um, their husbands because, you know, their husbands just couldn't afford to look after them. Wow. Elderly um, people who, again, had no one to take care of them. You see children, um, you know, walk around in the streets of Gaza unoccupied, um, barefoot, with, with, with no food. Um, mm. This is like vacant. Right, literally, no, no, nowhere to stay. Mm-hmm. Um, no, no, nobody to take care of them, and you see lines and lines of of small children just waiting um, to collect a little bit of non-portable water, which is um, is not drinkable water. Water which is not good. Uh, you know, you gives you conditions, diseases mm-hmm. uh, if drank, um, and if used. To wash again, give you skin conditions, um, you know. So, so the the and then in terms of the settlements, um, you know, 90% of the Gazan people are now living in the south of Gaza, um, from Khan Yunus all the way down to the Rafai crossing, mm-hmm. um, and you know we're talking millions and millions of people um, squashed into the south of Gaza. And Gaza is already the strip itself is. Uh, one of the most populated areas 
in the world and and now you have 90 percent and millions of people in the south of gaza so um these settlement camps where, where they're living now are, are just extremely overcrowded no space to walk around people uh, sleep shoulder to shoulder um people sometimes sleep with people they don't even know um because of uh, just just not having anywhere to go mm-hmm. and they uh, i mean even these these the, the material that these shelter themselves they're made of material which are just um fire hazardous and mm-hmm. extremely thin they they i mean especially given now that we're we're going in we're in the winter um, and and temperatures are going to get colder um people don't even have uh, apart from the shelters themselves they don't have clothes they don't have warm clothing um i spoke about the water there's literally no sanitation whatsoever i think i read a UN report to say um, between five to six hundred people they, there's one toilet I myself didn't see any um, and and there's mm-hmm. queues for for water and said um, which is not safe they, there's queues for hours and hours just to uh, if you do find yourself a toilet there's, mm-hmm. there's queues for hours and hours um, I mean Osman did you how did you feel in terms of your own safety and you know those uh, NGOs, the charities who are actually in there, because you know, media leads us to believe that uh, every time the IDF, uh, the Israeli Defense Force, are going to perform a bombardment, they give prior warning, or that's what the media actually mm-hmm. tells us uh, that they give prior warnings. I mean, are you aware that they do this? I mean, you know, is this actually the case? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean. Humanitarian corridors or, or safe zones, as they sometimes referred to, are extremely vulnerable. There, in mm-hmm. that, um, you, you, they're, they're not safe. Um, you, they could be bombarded any minute. Um, there, there are uh, forcible evacuations, evacuations at extremely short notice. But, it, but it, what, what, it, what that does is, doctors and medical practitioners have to choose between their patients and the safety their own life and mm-hmm. um, you know for us to move around I mean when, when we were there um, I didn't sleep whatsoever the few days that I, that I was there um, because of the noise because of the bombardments it literally feels like that even though we're staying in the south uh, deep into the south of Rafa, um and mainly the fighting is in central Gaza mm-hmm. but it sounds as if from where we were the fighting was literally over us mm, and so on your doorstep on on literally on other and and some of our building was also mm. damaged wow so it's there's no given things could move extremely quickly mm-hmm. um we know that hundreds of humanitarian workers have been injured have also died um so situation for humanitarian workers will become even more acute as more civilians are squashed mm. into, into the south and ground operations move southwards, area bombardments intensify in in the south of, of, of Gaza. So it's we're, we're doing whatever we can to work with uh, the government to try and see it can be more safety provided to humanitarians working in Gaza. I remember speaking to one of the doctors when we were there. Um, she had been stuck in a hospital for four weeks um, with no access uh, to uh, limited food and water that was already there, but no additional access coming in or in or out. And when when she did 
eventually she she had no idea whether she would survive when she did come out she was literally um pinned to the ground uh, by armed forces um and 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 taken away um so it's it's i mean you're literally putting your life at risk um to go in uh and and and, and i and i still commend people because yeah. there are a lot of that do want to help and even uh, yeah they're the, putting their own lives on the line really yeah mm-hmm. exactly and even the people of Gaza I mean though there's we're starting to see a lot of social unrest there um, when you come out into as soon as you come out in, from the border you have a lot of people jumping on cars on, on trucks mm-hmm. um, and, and putting their hands into windows to try and grab whatever they can mm-hmm. um, but having said that um, you know that's far and few, and it's just on the border. But 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 you are starting to see social unrest. Mm. Um, but people are, you know, it's it's shocking how still you you see a lot of people still smiling and still trying to help each other. Um, and you see, you know, children playing on the streets of Gaza. It's it's really heart touching. Mm. And you were talking about the supplies. Um, first of all, I mean. Are, are those supplies really enough? Are they doing any difference? And uh, if they are getting into into Gaza, I mean, what are the challenges they're facing? What uh, you mentioned that people, you know, are trying to grab whatever they can because of the situation they're in. So, what what kind of challenges are those aid trucks, uh, if they are enough, uh, facing? Well, prior to the, the recent war, uh, there was over five hundred trucks going in. Um, now th- there isn't even, uh, you know, about 50 trucks going in in, in the day. Um, north of Gaza, whatsoever, there's about 500,000 uh, people still, half a million people still living north of Gaza. There's absolutely no aid um, going to the north of Gaza. I think recently the UN had a convoy um, with some aid to go there, um, but, it, but it's, it's zero to none uh, to the north of Gaza. And that's because... There just isn't a, a mechanism to get aid into the north of Gaza. And then in terms of the south of Gaza, um, there's two routes for aid to come in. Uh, one is through uh, you know, the, the Jordanian crossing, which then goes into West Bank. It then goes around southeast um, of, of, of uh, Israel and then through uh, the Rafah crossing. Um, that is extremely convoluted process. It's extremely long. Um, the shortest and quickest route to get, uh, as as we currently know, is through the Rafa, is through the Egyptian crossing, in, into into Rafa. But again, the process is extremely long. It's extremely convoluted. You need a formal um, relationship with the ERC, uh, which is the Egyptian Red Cross. Um, that aid that you then provide to them is then vetted by both the uh, Egyptian government and uh, the Israeli government. There's a, a long list of what you can and cannot bring. Um, mm-hmm. we, we've seen, I mean, it's, we've seen reports from the UN, we've seen the reports from the UK government also recently, David Cameron um, reported on the lack of aid which is going into Gaza. I mean, even when we were there on the borders, you've got the entire border crossing, you have trucks, so many trucks lined up, uh, just waiting for aid to go in. 
um, you know, it's arbitrarily being held there. There's a lot of uh, scrutiny. Um, there's a lot of bureaucracy. It's extremely difficult to get aid into Gaza. We've been fortunate enough, as you said, um, as mm. one of the first NGOs, uh, independent NGOs, UK NGOs, to go into Gaza to see all of this firsthand. We've also been quite fortunate enough to uh, work with our partners to get aid in. It's not enough. It's nowhere near enough. But we're doing as much as we can. We've, we've had blankets, jackets, thousands and thousands of jackets, blankets, winter clothing, um, food, uh, uh, rice. Um, we ourselves took as much as we could um, in our personal belonging. Um, we went as part of a UN convoy. We had to work very closely with Kogat, the Israeli government, to try and um, take our through our personal belongings as much as food as we could. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so we are doing as much as we, we can. And this, this this time, I mean, as um, what, what one of your panelists said that. We just don't know what the future of Gaza looks like. Certainly, whether it remains Gaza or, or, you know, there's going to be a a very, very long-term need. So we're working, there's a close nexus between our disaster response teams and our uh, country teams, service delivery teams, to see what the future of Gaza looks like, how we can support beyond Mm -hmm. the current crisis. So there's a long I mean, Osman, many of our listeners, you know, here at home, uh, may want to help with, you know, donations uh, of money, whatever it may be, towards Palestine. I mean, can you tell us what kind of impact, you know, yourself uh, as Humanity First uh, has been able to make uh, with the donations that you've received so far? I mean, you said you know you're actually having to take um, food foods, uh, clothing, in your own personal uh, allowances. Is there no allowance in in terms of more bulk uh, transfer of these goods? Yeah, so we've we've had, uh, as I said, we've been fortunate enough to um, have a, a, a truck go into, mm-hmm. into Gaza. We've had thousands and thousands of blankets, jackets, food provisions, which we've taken in. We're also working very closely with the UK government to support uh, some aid that we've got in the pipeline uh, to to go in. We we partner up with uh, a number of uh, charities, NGOs on the ground who have been there for over 40 years. Um, they've got lots of warehouses. We visit mm-hmm. those warehouses. Our aid is there in the warehouses. But you know, so so one of the places we visited was um, within these shelters, temporary shelters. A kitchen which delivers seventeen thousand food um, meals per day, mm-hmm. um, but it's nowhere near enough. I mean, you've got mm-hmm. at least three hundred, three hundred thousand people living in uh, in in some of these shelters, temporary mm-hmm. shelters or more. So it's nowhere near enough when you think about seventeen thousand compared to people living there. But it, but we are working with our partners mm. to deliver. I mean, it, it sounds as smart that it's not a, a fact of having the re- resources. It's actually getting. Uh, the resources in to where they are most required? It's a bit of both. I mean, we've got inroads to um, through our partners to the most affected areas, so that's really important. We, we know what the map looks like. We know where the needs are. That's the first thing, and that's something we continuously assess. The second thing is, yes, there's a lack of aid, but uh, as one of the first NGOs 
in, into into Gaza. We have, um, you know, we're, we're collaborating. A lot, of, a lot more organisations want to collaborate with us, including governments. So that kind of um, alleviates some of the challenges, at least to the extent that we have um, governments um, advocating for for aid to go in. They're specifically working with us to um, ensure that our aid that we we um, we, we we're procuring across the globe uh, gets into Gaza. It's it's a slow process, but it's a process that we're we're definitely trying to streamline as much as we can. Um, and and we've got a lot of as I said, it's not just for us. It's not just in terms of need. It's not for us. We're not just looking at this current crisis. We're doing whatever we can in the current crisis. But beyond that, there's going to we're going to need need a lot of funds to um, to rebuild the people of Gaza to mm-hmm. um, put long term long term support provisions there. So there's a there's a need in terms of funding, um, but but in terms in terms of what we we can deliver. Um, we're, we're, as I said, quite fortunate to have. I mean, finally, Usman, I mean, moving forward, and you've addressed or you're trying to address that is, you know, the current need is basically survival. But looking forward, um, you know, what what would your, because you've got experience of the region, you're, you know, you're hands-on currently. I mean, what would you like to see from the international community in ultimately trying to bring an end to this current conflict? Well, we we would definitely urge a, a ceasefire. I mean, mm-hmm. that's uh, one of the first things to try and ensure that uh, there, there's aid going in as quickly as possible. Um, we, we definitely, uh, this is something what we're uh, vigorously advocating for, for, for there to be uh, strict humanitarian cor- corridors for humanitarians to be able to operate within safely um, without feeling the, the risk of, of uh, you know, the safety to their life. It means that we can get more humanitarians to to go in and support, um, and long term for uh, you know, I mean, you, more governments need to advocate um, for uh, some to- some sort of solution. Mm, um, stability in the region, really. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, Usman, it's been a pleasure speaking to you today. A uh, real eye opener uh, as to the the true situation that. Uh, um, you know, everybody there in Palestine is facing on a day-to-day basis. No, thank you very much for uh, letting myself know and our listeners know that. Um, thank you for joining us this afternoon on the Drive Time Show. Thank you for having me. Peace mm-hmm. be and blessings be on you. Have a good day. Thanks. Bye. 0208-687-7878 or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Um, as regards to, um, you know, we were looking at the historical uh, and what's got us up to you know present day conflict mm-hmm. uh, and you know one of the things that uh, media uh, governments have pointed out is this final uh, on October the 7th uh, last year 2023 when Hamas uh, an armed group of Palestinians attacked Israel and this has led to uh, the Israeli uh, government declaring war on Gaza um, and you know we're witnessing this war and the injustice, injustice, injustices uh, meted out on innocent people, uh, which you know is obviously extremely wrongful and, for, and forbidden by God Almighty, as He states in chapter sixteen, verse ninety-one. Verily, Allah enjoins justice; 
the doing of goods, good to others and giving like kindred and forbids indecency and manifest evil and wrongful transgression. He admonished that you may need to take heed. I mean, Osman, that pretty much says it. I mean, you know, if we cannot see manifest evil happening, then I think you must be blind. Yeah, I think it's uh, exactly goes in line with what His uh, Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masur Ahmed, mm-hmm. the head of the Amni Muslim community. He mentioned this a couple of times now that these leaders, I mean, if you think they don't have the power or capability to help, then you're mistaken. Mm-hmm. They have the power, all the power in the world. Like, how can they let innocent people die? It's because inside they have some kind of evil, some kind of personal goals, mm-hmm. which are stopping them from, you know, doing the right thing. And that's what this verse is exactly talking about, that, um, you know, Allah, that Allah enjoins, commands you to do justice and to do good. Uh, and like we mentioned earlier as well, uh, to be just, even if it's against uh, mm-hmm. your loved ones, your mm-hmm. close ones. I mean, we look at how uh, media has portrayed this conflict and past conflicts. I mean, over the past months, you know, we've been w- witnessing this horror and des- uh, destruction of people's lives uh, through media uh, and Mm. through social media as well. Now, the WHO, the World Health Organization, reported that the people in Gaza uh, face an imminent risk of outbreaks of communicable diseases. The numbers recorded since mid-October 2023 show over 213,000 cases of upper respiratory infection, uh, 6,800 cases of scabies and lice, 44,000 cases of skin rashes, 7,000 cases of jaundice, and the list goes on. But for me, it's just a case of, I think, the fact that overwhelming 24,000 who have lost their lives because of this conflict. But out of those 24,000, mm-hmm. 70% are women and children. Yeah. And again, the, the people that are dying are just, that's, you know, the tip of the iceberg. That's obviously one of the worst that can happen. But mm-hmm. even below that, like you mentioned, there is probably so many, so many more Palestinians, more than these numbers are saying, uh, which are suffering from diseases, uh, as uh, Usman Dean mentioned, mm-hmm. the cleanliness, the hygiene, sanitation, there's non-existent. Mm. So, I mean, just imagine what, what situation would be I like. mean, we, yeah, that's it. It's, it's unimaginable for us because, you know, we have not, in this country, in the UK, um, even during World War II, we've never been invaded in that sense mm. and had that destruction. Yes, during World War II, we had the Blitz in London. So you could see, you know, bombing and destruction, but that has not been visited upon our shores for you know, over 70-odd years. Yeah. So to actually imagine that, you know, you have to, you know, it is survival, as Usman said. You know, it's not a case of, um, oh, yeah, I'm hungry, I need to go to the shops to get a loaf of bread. You can't do that. There's yeah, no shop. There no There's shop. no road to go down. But um, we're actually joined by our next guest of the day, uh, Professor Haim, um, Haim Brasith. I hope I've pronounced that correctly. I'm sure uh, Professor Haim will uh, correct me if not. But it's uh, Professor Haim Bashif Zabna, and uh, he's a professor and has professor uh, research associate, sorry, at SOAS uh, in London. He's also a filmmaker, photographer, and film study scholar. His books include the best-selling Introduction to the Holocaust, 
and more recently, an army like no other, how the Israeli Defense Forces made a nation. Peace and blessings be upon you, Professor. Thank you for joining us today on the Drive Time Show. Thank you. I hope I uh, I apologize for my pronunciation <laughs> of your surname. I hope it was near it's enough. Fine. It's, it's fine. It's fine. Okay, so we are talking about uh, the the situation in Palestine currently. I mean, there is a continuing rhetoric uh, of this conflict, this war being uh, Jews against Muslims. But can you know? Can you comment on the reality of the situation in relation to the Zionist movement? Because we're finding currently in the West that anything that you say uh, which is against Israel, against Israeli uh, government, it gets labelled as being anti-Semitic. Of course, uh, the West is supporting this uh, genocidal attack, this Mm -hmm. uh, illegal and immoral attack on the Palestinians, and therefore they um, call out all of us who support Palestine and the law and uh, are against genocide, they call us anti-Semites. You know, both my parents survived Auschwitz and I'm an Israeli Jew Mm -hmm. and and supposedly I'm anti-Semitic because I'm supporting the Palestinians. This is total madness. I mean, how can that be, Professor? (laughs) It's it's a contradiction in terms. Mm -hmm. Well, because the powerful people of this world, the Western nations, are supporting Israel, um, and therefore they can make anything illegal uh, if they wish to. And they have um, decided that to criticize Israel uh, is illegal um, and is uh, anti-Semitic. Now, of course, both of these are nonsense. Um, You can criticize any other country in the world, as far as I'm aware, and uh, get away with it because it's totally uh, within uh, freedom of speech. Mm. Um, now, to criticize a country that um, uh, is enacting genocide and killing tens of thousands of people is not only um, legal, but it's also moral and necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, this is what we need to do if we are citizens of this world and we want to live in peace in it. Uh, on, uh, you know, what the um, UK government, what the US government, what the EU government has done, uh, have made it uh, anti-Semitic and illegal. Um, They also made um, noises about making uh, the phrase uh, from the river to the sea Mm -hmm. uh, illegal. Uh, The the phrase has actually been uh, invented by Zionists uh, in the 70s. and um, actually meant a whole, um, you know, a whole Palestine um, under Zionist rule. Mm-hmm. So this is bizarre what is happening. Uh, the people who are actually making those decisions have no idea of um, either the history of the Middle East, um, human rights, um, or indeed any fact about the conflict. Mm. I mean, just your statement, have... just your professor, just your statement there. You know, I mean, we've seen this slogan from the river to the sea. Uh, I mean, if you had no uh, knowledge of the history of Palestine or the conflicts of Palestine um, since basically being partitioned and given off during um, World War II or post-World War II, then, you know, it's an abrogation of 
of truth then because it's it's you know now this 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 fr- uh, this phrase from the river to the sea is seen as something as uh, oh being pro palestinian so it's it's it, to me it's it's bizarre palestinians have adopted it um to mean um the area of palestine this mm-hmm. is palestine between the river and the sea is palestine it's not israel mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and um basically they have a right to be free like any other human being on mm-hmm. this earth so when they say that um everyone between the river and the sea shall be free and the palestine shall be free from the river to the sea they are talking about human rights mm, true, they are true. not talking about the taking of any rights of anyone mm-hmm. but they're talking about human rights um, we should uh, stop um, following uh, those instructions by our governments because they are not uh, legal and they're not moral and they are not even logical mm-hmm. yes professor um, we, we mentioned a little bit of briefly the history um, of how it started from you know in 1922 the League of Nations uh, giving space to the Jews and making a, a home and then 1947 uh, Israel being created um, but recently a, a lot of a lot of talk has been around the attack on October the 7th uh, but what about the history before that can you tell us a little bit about that well you know let us not forget that it was Britain that has um, yeah. <laughs> the Britain here um, because you didn't mention it and I w- would what what, not to, to forget that in 1917, mm. the Balfour Declaration has mm. given a country that Britain it didn't own mm-hmm. uh, to uh, people that didn't have a right to it. So these are two, um, um, two um, terrible mistakes uh, that were made in 1917. The 22, 1922 um, League of Nations was built on um, the 1917 um, Balfour Declaration. So, uh, yeah, when um, one um, mistake follows another, it's not a mistake, it's a crime, really. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, in 1947, the UN, which was uh, a year old by then, and not very mature, obviously, has decided to divide Palestine for no apparent reason, because the um, Arab nations have refused the div- division of Palestine and suggested um, a country um, that uh, allows uh, the Jews and the Palestinians equal rights within um, historical Palestine. Mm. This was not agreed by the West. So uh, why? what is wrong with a country that allows uh, equal rights for everyone. Uh, well, there was nothing, nothing wrong, wrong then, and there is nothing uh, wrong now. Yeah. Um, Israel does not allow uh, equal rights to Palestinians, never did, and never will. So Zionism is the problem. Mm-hmm. Zionism is um, a racist regime uh, of apartheid, um, ethnic cleansing, and now even genocide. Now, I ask you, uh, is it right that uh, of all people, Jews are now and involved in genocide. This is terrible. I mean, it's, it's a, that's that's what I find the most bizarre um, outcome currently of this of this of this last conflict uh, and of, of the situation there. That you know, having uh, experienced the Holocaust, 
then you must have some empathy with what you are now doing as you know as the as the Israeli um, government uh, are doing to you know the Palestinians. I suggest to you, uh, and you will not be surprised, that all the empathy um, and definitely mine is with the Palestinians mm-hmm. and not those who kill them illegally, immorally, illogically, call it what you like. Mm-hmm. There is no way um, anyone can justify genocide. Mm-hmm. There is the Genocide Convention that carefully outlined what uh, it means to do genocide. And Israel is ticking all the boxes. So mm. uh, there has never been a case where it's so easy <laughs> To prove that this is genocide because the president the prime minister the chief of the military um, many MPs uh, many uh, members of the Knesset uh, in Israel uh, many uh, public figures uh, most of them have actually declared uh, the intention to uh, um, basically um, eradicate yeah Eradicate Gaza as, as, mm. a, as a place where people can live and eradicate the people of Gaza. And uh, it's not possible now to, to live in Gaza the way that they have destroyed uh, 90% of um, the buildings. Mm. Uh, but now, apart from that, that it's not possible to live there uh, because of uh, the destruction. It's not possible to exist as human beings without water, without electricity, without communication, without food, uh, what to do without a- any services working because they've destroyed the hospital, they've destroyed the universities, the schools, they've destroyed everything that people need to go on living. And um, if this is not genocide, then what is? Mm. Yes, I, I, I mean, it is. It's, it's, if it looks like, you know, if it looks like and it smells like, then it pretty much is, yeah. Um, and unfortunately, um, Western governments, wherever they may be, you know, in Europe, uh, in the US, I, I don't know, the, the hands are tied. You know, they just don't feel that they can, call, you know, call it what it is. Their hands are not tied. Each of them is um, actually creating, uh, is um, taking part. In what do you think? Life. Actually, I, yeah, I, I, I actually agree. After saying that, um, you know, their the hands are tied. I, I, I thought that's stupid to say, have said that. But yes, I, I mean, you know, they're, do you think that they're sitting on their hands has allowed this situation to base or allowed the Israeli government the IDF, just to get away with whatever they want to, with genocide. Of course, course it's... It, uh, now, they're not sitting on their hands. Um, they are actually actively supporting, yeah, financing, true. arming, uh, making sure uh, in the UN that Israel does not face any sanctions. Um, they are party to genocide. Uh, well. Rishi Sunak, uh, mm. Biden... Uh, everyone uh, in Europe, uh, and indeed even our great leader of the opposition, Sir Keir Starmer, mm. is an active supporter of genocide and um, um, a devout, devout uh, Zionist. Mm. So this is what we're talking about. Our leadership um, is not fit for purpose. These people should be in the uh, International Criminal Court or in the ICJ, 
uh, as a party to genocide, yeah. because that is the law. Aiding they the should not be in holding any public office, and no one should vote for them because they are party to genocide. Mm -hmm. Well, um, Professor Haim, thank you very much for your uh, your views on that. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot of listeners out there who would agree. But uh, no, thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure talking to you this afternoon on the Drive Time Show. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 0208-687-7878 or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Yeah, very strong words there from the professor. Yes, very, very vocal. Um, though we, we do not um, openly accuse uh, anyone, uh, but yeah. we do say, I mean... Nice covering. <laughs> because, of, because, because the... No, it's our, true. Yeah. Yes, the MPs, Prime Minister, they are... What we what we can see is that they are not defending. Uh, yeah, I mean, the thing so is, what we will assume is that you know, we we I think in our defence, yeah, Osman and myself, Talib, in yeah. our defence, we will just look back at what we quoted right at the beginning, uh, that verse in the Holy Quran. O ye who believe, be strict in observing justice and be witnesses for Allah, even though it be against yourselves or against parents and kindred. Whether he be rich or poor, Allah is more regardful of them both than you are. Therefore, follow not low desires so that you may not, you may be able to act equitably. And if you conceal the truth or evade it, then remember that Allah is well aware of what you do. Yeah. So yeah, we can yeah we are reporting. Um, and it's just like you mentioned that there there is a criteria of genocide, and Israel is taking all the boxes. Yeah, it's, uh, it's in the same way. There's many people that there is something called humanitarian support mm -hmm. aid, and you know humanity itself, and a lot of people are missing a few boxes in there. So yeah, I mean, I mean, don't you think, right, Osman? That, that you know this is beyond. There's not really a question of um, this this rhetoric of Jews against Muslims. It's mm. if you look at it outside, it's just humanity. I mean, how can I just find it perplexing and completely confusing that um, uh, a country which is occupied by uh, a nation of people who themselves have had genocide visited upon themselves, right, during yeah. World War Two in the well the holocaust so many jews died at the hands of uh you know <laughs> adolf hitler and his regime that you would have a memory of this and not actually see that you do the same things to another people mm -hmm. and this is exactly what they're doing yeah but this is you know this is the cycle of of life of of and even history i mean if i can uh, just briefly tell you that this is a prophecy made yeah. in the holy quran and it, it's the prophecy clearly mentions that this will happen. Mm -hmm. So, uh, how, however mind-boggling this is, uh, we as Muslims believe in this that this mm -hmm. was meant to happen, and uh, we don't, we don't say it's a good thing. But mm -hmm. this is des the design of Allah, whatever is his uh, his uh, intention, his his um, um, uh, you know thinking behind this. We don't know, but yeah. this is how the cycle works. That he promised, uh, he mentioned this prophecy that the Jews will. Uh, create disorder twice and they will be punished for it and the mm -hmm. Muslims likewise will create disorder twice and be mm -hmm. punished for it and the interesting point here is that the second time the Muslims will be punished which is happening I think in, in this time which is filling the criteria as well is at, in the time of the promised Messiah mm -hmm. and we believe that the promised Messiah has come, come. and 
the, all the signs are being fulfilled. Mm-hmm. So we just call people towards Islam Ahmadiyya to mm-hmm. accept the true God, to accept the true Islam and mm-hmm. uh, the true prophet of... Because the, the, the prophecy is that, or the caveat in the prophecy is righteousness. Yes. Right, righteousness. But further, uh, we're going to go to our last guest uh, for this segment of the day. Uh, Asad Rahman, we're going to be joined by Asad, uh, Director of War on Want, a UK-based human rights organisation with decades of work supporting human rights organisations in Palestine. Aslam Rakum, peace and blessings be upon you, Asad. Thank you for joining wow. us on the Drive Time Show. So we're talking about Palestine, the situation there. Human rights abuses have been taking place uh, in Palestine uh, for decades before you know the uh, sorry events of October the 7th. Are you able to give our listeners some context uh, as to uh, the situation we're seeing in Gaza today, you know, how it's playing out there? Well, thank you. Uh, thank you for the first invitation to come and join you. Um, so as we come on air, uh, we know that at least 50 people have been killed in Khan Yunis. There's Israel wow. bombards from the air and sea. Two hospitals have also been targeted with reports that the medics there have been arrested. And this fits into a wide pattern that we see, mm-hmm. where we, we currently estimate about 25,000 people have been killed, at least 11,000 of, of them are children. Mm. Overall, some 70% are women, children, and the elderly. There is at least 8,000 people who are buried, presumed either dead or dying beneath the rubble. Um, close to 2 million of those, total 2.2 million people in Gaza are being displaced. We have seen schools, hospitals, mosques, churches flattened. The equivalent of three Hiroshima bombs have been dropped on Gaza. Uh, water, food, fuel, medicine, and even communications are being blocked. And uh, as many of our colleagues uh, are being reporting from inside Gaza, doctors are now being operating in the few hospitals that are still functioning, including mm-hmm. amputations on children without anaesthetic and by torchlight. The World Food Programme, which is the big UN agency, says hunger is being weaponized as a deliberate famine is being created. And there are now predictions that up to a third of the Gaza population could die in the near future as a result of the near total destruction of the health system and its associated impact. Mm-hmm. The UN has said if there is a hell on earth today, it's Gaza. We have seen that the doctors, journalists, aid workers, UN staff, academics are being murdered in unprecedented numbers, mm-hmm. highest in in any conflict in modern times. And of course, Gaza has been turned into rubble. And these war crimes and crimes against humanity and even genocidal acts that have been perpetrated, of course, have to be seen in a wider context, uh, the systems of apartheid that are, operate mm-hmm. today, because whilst we talk a lot about also Gaza in the occupied uh, West Bank, we are also seeing um, thousands of Palestinians being arrested, uh, Palestinian villages being ethnically cleansed by Israeli settlers. We see the ongoing uh, uh, occupation, nearly 56 years of occupation, in total 15 years of an illegal blockade on Gaza. And of course, a century since the Nakba and the ethnic cleansing Mm -hmm. of the Palestinian people from their homeland. And this is the broader context, of course, of these ongoing violations that we're all witnessing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just briefly, I think... Uh, uh, yeah, I just have a quick question then with the recent uh, current genocide hearing going on. What do you think should be the UK's stance and what, what, what action should the UK take and how should they be conducting themselves in this? 
Well, the words that were coined after the horrors of the Second World War and the Holocaust were never again. And there is an obligation on all countries and all politicians and, and actually on all of us to uh, not only act when we see genocide taking place, but to prevent genocide taking place. Mm-hmm. And so the, 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 the case being put forward by South Africa, supported by many other countries, is absolutely important because it's an opportunity for the International Court of Justice to recognise that, that they have a role to prevent the ongoing acts of genocide. And so what the UK should be doing, of course, is first of all, ending the ongoing diplomatic cover that they provide Israel. Mm. I mean, Not funding is, them. I'm sure, mm. Well, it's first of all shocking that, of course, that uh, the UK, the US and other European countries continue to refuse to call for an immediate ceasefire. Mm-hmm. They have to uphold international law. Uh, but that law is being breached. It's been very clear that it's being breached. We can end our arms sales for our complicity with the, with the ongoing violations. The UK continues to sell arms, uh, even though our own legislation prohibits the selling of arms if those arms are going to be used against the civilian population. Mm-hmm. And so there are many, now there are some legal steps being taken in the courts to try and uh, force the UK government to uh, address that and act and speak. But fundamentally, I mean, I think when we've, we've, we've seen this moment before, I, I was very active during the uh, 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 campaigns against apartheid in South Africa, and where many of the same countries also refused to act to end South African mm-hmm. apartheid. And it was relied on ordinary people calling for boycott, divestment, mm-hmm. sanctions, uh, putting pressure, calling for the prosecutions of those responsible for war crimes. So there are two big international processes going on at the moment. One is the International Criminal Court, which will get, which will rule on war crimes and crimes against humanity, and the International Crim- Crime, Cr- Criminal uh, Court of Justice, which will rule on genocide. But irrespective of those two, there is still an obligation on the UK, and historically the UK, having much more responsibility, mm. of course, as being responsible for the Balfour Declaration and the former mm, colonial okay. power of the, re- of the area. I'm going to have to cut you short there because we've come to the end of this slot. Yeah, the news is going to come in. But thank you very much for Always opening our eyes uh, and joining us on the Drive Time Show today. No problem. Thank okay. you very much. Good have a good day. Bye-bye. So um, we're going to go to the 5 o'clock news. Uh, we're just going to finish. And we'll come back When we come back after the news, we're just going to finish off this segment. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamualaikum. Welcome back to Monday's edition of the Drive Time Show. You're here live with myself, uh, Taliban, and Imam Usman Manan. So, uh, Usman, let's just conclude, let's wrap up that uh, last topic of Palestine. Yeah, so I mean, uh, we we had some very insightful uh, callers who have yeah. uh, enlightened us on the situation, what's happening inside Palestine, which uh, you know normally people don't know about, and uh, also we touched a little bit on the media, and uh, uh, but in conclusion, uh, the the suffering and injustice on Palestine has been going on for many years, and this war seems to you know not have an end in sight, but 
we cannot lose hope we cannot lose faith mm-hmm. i again remind everyone of, of the words of um hazrat his holiness who's you know repeatedly trying to tell us to turn towards prayer mm-hmm. i mean what other options do we as you know ordinary people mm-hmm. um, have and um, um, his holiness also stated that we should realize and recognize the critical need of the hour we must accept that peace can only be built upon the solid foundations of honesty integrity and justice these are the keys to peace until there is honesty and justice no solution will ever prove beneficial and that perfectly links with the with the verse we recited or, or presented in the beginning mm-hmm. where allah the almighty commanded us to act yeah. with justice no matter what no matter what yeah and uh, just to cap off that particular topic we did actually have a poll an instagram poll uh, whereby we said who or what is to blame for the injustices um the media uh, so you were given a couple of choices yeah the media world leaders hamas or others uh, and to dm us with others and the results of the poll was overwhelmingly 92% right 92% said world leaders 8% said the media zero for hamas funnily enough zero for hamas so that actually i completely agree with this yeah. i mean um yeah i think maybe i would give 1% to hamas for you know yeah because look we are obviously because we no, do nobody not condone, is un, unblamed yeah. kind of yeah it takes two to tango right <laughs> unfortunately <laughs> but some some people are a bit more dominant than mm-hmm. others so with that we're going to go to a very very short break join us back after the break when we will be uh, looking at the early well the, the early years of the holy prophet peace and blessings be upon him a new station the voice of islam with live discussions religion and culture understand the true teachings of islam with the voice of islam assalamualaikum peace and blessings to our listeners out there welcome back after a very swift break to the uh, monday's edition of the drive time show so in our second hour we'll be looking at the holy prophet peace and blessings be upon him his early childhood and and prophethood now in the holy quran allah almighty states in chapter 33 verse 22 that Verily, you have the Prophet of Allah, an excellent model for him who fears Allah and the last day and who remembers Allah much. No doubt, Muslims believe that the Holy Prophet uh, Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, was shaped by God himself for this high purpose. But how did that happen and what obstacles did the Holy Prophet, uh, peace and blessings be upon him, have to overcome to get there? Uh, in this uh, part of the show we're going to be looking at various aspects of the prophet's life before actually before prophethood um starting with a brief look at the history of the Quraysh tribe uh, that the holy prophet peace and blessings be upon him belonged to uh the death of his parents and what his early childhood looked like his character at an early age so if we start off with the parents death uh usman what can we see Yes so uh, uh, I mean uh, the the father of the holy prophet Muhammad his name was Abdullah mm-hmm. he actually passed away you know before uh, the holy prophet Muhammad peace be upon him was born uh, I think he was around um the mother was around 6 7 months uh, pregnant and his father passed away on the way back to uh, Mecca from Medina and uh, <coughs> uh, the holy Quran states in uh, chapter 33 verse 57 that Allah and his angels send blessings on the prophet o ye who believe you also should invoke blessings on him with the salutation of peace um 
so Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, he was born in 570 AD uh, in the in the Hashemite branch of the tribe Quraysh. And uh, as I mentioned, his, mo- his father's name was Abdullah and his mm-hmm. mother's name was Amina. Amina. Amina, may Allah be pleased with them. Mm-hmm. And uh, his father passed away, uh, you know, just uh, before he was born. And his, his mother passed away when uh, he was, I think, six, seven years old. Mm-hmm. So at a very young age. And uh, living um, in the desert, he learned from uh, this tribe the purest and most classical form of the Arabic language. In his later years, the Holy Prophet used to tell his companions, I am the most Arab among you, for I am the tribe of Quraysh, and I have been brought up among the tribe of Banu Sa'd. So it was a very, very... Um, very unique. Very unique and very yeah. high in status, mm-hmm. the, the family of the Holy Prophet. Um, and we see, in, if you look back in, in history, prophets usually, I think mostly, and I think all of them, I'm, I'm not sure, but prophets are from noble families. Mm-hmm. And uh, even though they live among the poor and the poor join them, but the prophet... Uh, and, and themselves, they are from noble families, and that's so. There's there's no uh, no blame on them uh, that uh, um, you know that they 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 maybe he's claiming to be a prophet because of jealousy because he wants fame. Mm-hmm. So they're already from a noble tribe, from a noble family. So they have that, that lineage, yeah, really in in their ancestry. I mean, you're during uh, actually during this time. Uh, a strange event took place in his childhood. Mm-hmm. Now, according to his routine, uh, one day the young prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, had gone to the woods to graze goats with uh, the village children. And out of nowhere, two men with bright, attractive faces appeared, dressed in pure white. Uh, without saying anything, the two men caught hold of uh, the young Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, and cut open his chest with a scalpel and taking something out of his heart, uh, threw it aside. Next, they took out his heart, uh, placed it in a large basin and proceeded to wash it with clean, pure water until it began to shine like a pearl. Then they put the heart back uh, in his chest, patched it up and Mm. left. Now, the village children and uh, Halima's son, Abdullah, who were watching this incident, became incredibly frightened. Trembling with fear and out of breath, they reached the village, went straight to Halima and told her, uh, you know, this great calamity had occurred. They said, we were grazing goats and our brother from the Quraysh, Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, when suddenly two most handsome men coming from a mountain pass approached us. Judging from their pleasing beards, pure and chaste looks, and long, loose coats, we took them to be righteous characters, but they proved to be most cruel. They quickly caught hold of our brother from the Quraysh and split open his stomach with a long knife. Seeing this, we ran as fast as we could, lest they uh, lest they caught and slayed us as well. Who knows mm. what happened after we left? So obviously, you know, this tale... Yeah. Um, I mean, how do we look at this? How do we view this in modern times? Uh, yes, yeah, so the, obviously we, we in Islam we have uh, there's a lot of interpretation because many things are, are metaphors. Yeah, and this uh, is not a metaphor, but the, the two people which actually came were angels, mm-hmm. and um, sometimes does happen that the 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 vision somebody's seeing a prophet is also affected by. Uh, other people are also affected by it. They can also see it. And this was the case. And the that's children, the power of that vision. Yes. And yeah. the, the the people that uh, the children saw as well were angels. And the heart, uh, which was taken out from uh, 
the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, was actually taken out to be purified. Mm-hmm. So the angels completely get, got rid of any, uh, any anything in, any impurities. that could cause any impurity mm-hmm. um, and put a completely pure heart back into his back chest. Into his. And uh, uh, this was just to demonstrate as well to, to the people around him that this man is the purest, purest. of the purest. And uh, he... That was just uh, just an incident uh, showing the the greatness which mm-hmm. this this prophet had been bestowed be, upon, has uh, been bestowed yeah, upon also the future bestowed. as well. Well, we're joined by our first guest, uh, Imam Masood Mansur, uh, who is the president and missionary in charge of uh, Jamia Ghana, Guyana, I should say. Assalamualaikum, peace and blessings be upon you, uh, Imam Masood. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show. Thank you for having me. So um, this afternoon we're talking about uh, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, in his uh, in his early life. I mean, can you provide uh, some details, some more details about the birth of Prophet Muhammad, uh, peace and blessings be upon him, in f- uh, 570 AD and his upbringing uh, in the Hashmid uh, branch of the Quraysh tribe? What was so special or you know, so unique about that? Okay, so Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, uh, you know, before his birth, uh, his father Abdullah passed away. Um, that was very, you know, a significant event, although there are some narration might be that say that his father passed away after his birth. But from very young age, he became an orphan. Mm-hmm. And um, then, you know, he, his mother was looking after him and uh, this is also said that his mother also passed away when he was very young, um, just six years old. Yeah. So that is another very, you know, a shocking uh, thing for a little child to observe. And then his grandfather, Abdul Muttalib, uh, he became his guardian and he started looking after him. And so these events basically, you know, if these events normally happen to an ordinary person, an ordinary person can can go through a lot of uh, problems. I mm-hmm. was talking to one psychiatrist, and he told me in psychology it is said that um, a child is you know if a child grows up without a father, especially they suffer from a lot of uh, problems mm-hmm. or they're at I mean, high you must, risk. You must be emotionally um, scarred from that from that right, loss, really. Right. Yeah? Right. So when when these child normally, you know, in, in our society too, we can see that sometimes these child become, uh, you know, started to take drugs and they um, they suffer from depression and they, they start to do crimes. Mm-hmm. But Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, was, you know, completely opposite. Mm-hmm. And it seems like Allah was preparing him for a great mission. And it is that's why it is mentioned in the Quran in chapter 93 surah az-zuha that allah says alam jadidka yatiman fa'ava that did he not find thee an orphan and gave thee shelter then allah said fa'amal yatima fala takhar so the orphan oppressed not of course mm-hmm. holy prophet muhammad peace be upon him was not that kind of person he was very compassionate very very kind and you know the these circumstances it seems like played a um, major role for him to be, you know, 
compassionate and merciful and kind. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this teaching is, of course, is for all of us. If Allah tells Prophet Muhammad, who was so kind and compassionate, so, you know, we too have to be compassionate. Mm-hmm. We too have to be merciful. Yes, so uh, Imam, these were, Imam Masood, you know, very uh, childhood. Yes. If you could just uh, uh, tell us a little bit about the dreams um, his mother had, uh, Hazrat Amina, oh, at yes. the birth of yes, uh, so the Holy Prophet, and how do we interpret those dreams? Yes, so just before the birth of Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, uh, his mother, Hazrat Amina, she saw two dreams actually. The one, the first dream was that she saw that uh, an angel came and said that this child will be named Muhammad. Um, peace be upon him. That was the first dream. And then the second dream, she saw that uh, the light came forth from within her and spread to far off lands. So this dream, we understand that, you know, it is obvious now that, you know, the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, was to become a prophet of Islam. And then through his teaching, that light would have to spread all over the world. So this was like a prophecy uh, that was given to his mother, and we, we are witnessing that prophecy even till today. Mm-hmm. Yes, truly. Yeah. So, I mean, in the absence uh, of his parents, how did the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, find uh, the spiritual resilience and guidance during his early years? Because obviously, you know, you need your parents to give you not just that emotional uh, support in your in your growth. But, you know, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, didn't have either of those. So, you know, what? who who provided that guidance? Yes, that is true. So, as I was saying that after the demise of his mother, um, his grandfather, Abdul Mutlaq, took care of him. So he was looking after him for two years. And then even at the age of eight, he even passed away. Then his uncle, Abdul uh, uh, Abu Talib, mm-hmm. uh, sorry, he started looking after him. And he was very kind and, you know, very compassionate. And he would make sure that he is treated well. But I feel that, you know, it is still very difficult for a child, you know, to bear all these losses and yet, you know, to be very composed. But Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, was very special. And he would, you know, compose himself no matter what. And he will remain patient. So from very childhood, I believe that these circumstances molded him to be the best version that he was. And, you know, it was shaping him to be the great prophet. So he, Allah put him in different difficult situations so that he can be the merciful, you know, to all mankind. As Allah said in the Holy Quran, as well, Rahmatullah Alameen, that he is merciful to all mankind. So these are some of the circumstances we can say that molded him. But there were other incidents as well that, okay, you know, how he went through different circumstances, different um, things. For example, when his uncle, Abu Talib, at one time he was going to Syria for a caravan, you know, trade caravan. Mm -hmm. And he was very emotional. He was only 12 years old. And he didn't want to separate from his uncle. So his uncle took him. Mm-hmm. His uncle took him with him. And when he was, uh, there was a strange incident took place actually in Syria that uh, there was a, a monk, Christian monk, uh, by the name of Bahira. So he saw a vision too. He saw that all the rocks and plants have fallen into pro- prostration. 
And he realized because he was, you know, a saintly uh, monk, he realized that there must be a prophet among among that caravan. Mm-hmm. So he told his uncle to make sure you look after your uh, nephew and make sure you protect him from the Ahle Kitab, the people mm-hmm. of the book. Mm-hmm. Very well said. Well, uh, Imam, uh, Imam Masood, thank you very much for giving us your time. It's been a pleasure talking to you this afternoon uh, on the Drive Time Show. Thank you very much you. for having me. It was an honor and pleasure for mm-hmm. me. Assalamualaikum. O two o eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight or tweet us at voiceofislam.co.uk. Now, I mean, if we look at the and and I think uh, Imam Masood touched on the character, all right, mm-hmm. uh, even at an early age. I mean, you know, in, in the words of actually the promised Messiah, may Allah be pleased with him. The promised Messiah said, "The life of the Holy Prophet, peace uh, be upon him." was a life of grand success in his high moral qualities, his spiritual power, his high resolve, the excellence and perfection of his teaching, his perfect example, and the acceptance of his prayers. In short, in every aspect of his life, he exhibited such bright signs that even a person of low intelligence, provided uh, he is not inspired by unreasonable rancor and enmity, is forced to confess that he was a perfect example of the manifestation of divine qualities and was a perfect man. Now, this quote suggests that anyone, whether uh, or not they believe in Islam, can see from the Holy Prophet's way of living, his morals, his achievements, and that he had the highest of characters and showed excellence in every sphere of life. His behavior, the way he spoke in childhood, also made him different from other children and uh, was one of the early signs of his majesty. His grandfather, uh, Abdul uh, Muttalib, realized this fact and respected his majesty greatly. I mean, what other uh, characteristics are there uh, in his early Mm. ages? Yes, so um, I mean, there's all kinds of characteristics. Uh, I'd also like to mention a, a fact quickly that uh, it's not a fact, but you know, the book written by Michael Hart, um, the hundred, the hundred mm-hmm. most influential people uh, in history, and he placed the Holy Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him on number one. Right, and it was uh, for many, I mean, non-Muslims, this is a shock, mm-hmm. but uh, for Muslims, if we, if you critically, even for non-Muslims, if you critically uh, look through his life. And then the the standard he also uh, put was not just religious um, uh, influence or secular influence; it was both combined. Mm-hmm. That the, the the religious and secular influence of the Holy Prophet was unmatched with any other religious or secular figure in in history, mm-hmm. even uh, beyond Jesus. And all this obviously comes from a a um, a uh, uh, a childhood. Uh, which which embodies all the characteristics you were mentioning as well. Uh, another example is that the prophet um, the prophet was seven years old when the Jews remarked, uh, um, "In our books, we have read that the prophet of Islam refrains from eating any food which is religiously prohibited or doubtful." And so they said, "Let's try him." Mm-hmm. So they stole a a hen and sent it to Abu Talib, which was uh, the uncle of the Holy Prophet. And not knowing that uh, the hen was stolen, everyone ate from the cooked hen, except the Holy Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him. Uh, he avoided eating that. And uh, 
they said that uh, when they asked the answer, um, why why didn't you eat this hen? He said that this is forbidden. Then the Jews took a hen from a neighbor, but this time they said, we are going to pay for it later. Mm -hmm. So their intention was good, but it was not paid for. And uh, they sent it again to Abu Talib's house and the Holy Prophet again didn't eat from it. And uh, upon asking again, he said that this is doubtful. Mm -hmm. This is not forbidden because this is not stolen. Okay, you said you will pay for it later, but it's still mm -hmm. doubtful. And this is how they re realized that this, this person truly uh, is is uh, sent from God because God Almighty did not let him do anything wrong, whether knowingly or unknowingly. Mm -hmm. I mean, and that's that's how it, I think there is this uh, aura, right, uh, that is invoked in in every aspect of the Holy Prophet's life. I mean, even at such an early age, uh, I think uh, Imam Masood was. Uh, relating to us earlier on about his trip with uh, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, at the age 12, uh, and his trip um, with his uncle, um, Abu Talib, through mm. Syria, and yeah, meeting uh, a pious person of a different religion. But even, I suppose, you know, if you are chosen by God, the piety shines from within you yes. and it's recognized by regardless of uh, because at that point Islam had not come yet hmm. right and we have to remember that yeah that Islam and, and if you imagine uh, or you can cast yourselves back uh, as listeners to the time of the Holy Prophet and his birth the Arabian Peninsula was an unruly place right yeah a debauched place, mm. drink, um, uh, ch child genocide, right? Was well, uh, child genocide, infanticide, right? Was all commonplace. Gambling mm. was commonplace. Yeah, you, you're right to understand. You know the, the so actual, you've got to you've got to understand the, actual, uh, the that, status that, of the exactly that 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 is where he came from, right? And that would actually be a norm, mm. but and. Instead of, I suppose, falling for those um, those wiles of gambling, uh, drinking, drinking, all those you know, characteristics of the Arab Arabian Peninsula of that time, mm -hmm. he chose not to. Yes, and you need to understand that drinking for them uh, was not like a you know having a drink or two. They used to drink regularly, five times a day. That was like that was their practice. Mm -hmm. the, this is how they they would spend their day. They wouldn't have anything else to do. They would drink regularly five times a day, and then from one drink to another. And this is how, like, even among the one of the uh, companions, many of the companions of the Holy Prophet, there were such people that had drank before the before Islam came. Mm -hmm. But some companions asked the Holy Prophet after um, becoming Muslim that, "Did you ever drink?" He said, "No." He said, did you ever take part in gambling? He said, no, I never did that. And he said, did you ever worship any of those, uh, any idols. one of those 360 idols in the Kaaba? Mm -hmm. He said, no, I've never done this because I was never inclined towards this. I was always inclined towards worshipping one God. Mm -hmm. And even like many great companions of the Holy Prophet even uh, did uh, commit these things before they, uh, they accepted Islam. Mm -hmm. But this just shows how God Almighty protected the Holy Prophet from every kind of objection there can be mm -hmm. from the beginning, from his birth, 
until his prophethood and after his prophethood. And now we see that even today, 1400 years later, there are still people who object, who have arguments, who have, uh, you know, who find try to find faults in Islam. But mm-hmm. they can try for another thousand million years. There, yeah, was, because, there is no flaw in Islam. Yeah, it's a new universal yeah. religion. But to speak more regarding the life uh, or the early life uh, and influences uh, that uh, ultimately gave us the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him. We're joined by uh, Imam Rabib Mirza. Uh, and Imam Rabib Mirza is the regional missionary of uh, AMJ Island. Assalamu alaikum. Peace and blessings be upon you, Imam Rabib. Thank you very much for joining us on the Drive Time Show. Wa alaikum assalam. Peace be upon you. Peace be upon all of our listeners as well. Excellent. So we're talking about the early, uh, the early childhood um, of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him. I mean, how did the behaviour and speech of the of the young Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, actually distinguish him from other children, uh, according to uh, you know not just hearsay but by uh, historical accounts? Well, <clears throat> uh, again, it's a it's a very interesting question. Um, you see, the, the, the fact of the matter is that we see that the behavior and uh, the speech of the Holy Prophet wasallam was extremely pure um, since his childhood, uh, to the degree that, um, you know, once when he was playing with, with children, mm-hmm. um, there's an incident where <clears throat> an angel came, um, and it was obviously a, a, a state... Um, of of vision, we can say, um, but the other children they also, uh, you know, they they also experienced it mm-hmm. when angel came, and he as such cut the holy prophet. Yeah. We, we, we've spoken about this, uh, Imam Rabib. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So and, it, and I mean, that just shows you the power of that vision, really. Absolutely, and and the fact of. The Holy Prophet, uh, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, heart being purified mm-hmm. from that very age shows that God Almighty had endowed him and instilled him with pure uh, qualities and and you know behavior as well. Um, I'm I'm sure probably you've also discussed where there was some time where the Holy Prophet sallam, desired also to partake in in um, these festivals. Mm-hmm. Um, but God Almighty safeguarded him. So the the fact of the matter is that, uh, you know, from his behavior, from his speech, the society around him, they always looked upon him uh, as being a pure soul and a pure individual, to the degree that even we know that when once the Holy Prophet, uh, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was traveling with a caravan, uh, I believe it was either with his grandfather or his uncle, and they um, retired and rested uh, near Syria. Um, there was a Christian priest mm-hmm. who also experienced a sort of uh, state of vision where he saw that where the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was sat down, the tree, um, as such, it was sort of uh, uh, covering covering the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. In, in other words, it was granting him shade. Mm-hmm. And from that, he actually, um, you know, consequentially, or he said that, uh, or he deciphered, we can say in one sense, 
that he said that this this boy is uh, very unique and and very um, you know spiritually charged, mm. and it seems of divine, of divine it, nature basically. Absolutely of divine nature, and it seems that you know he will be conferred something by God Almighty. Um, so these were those things that even uh, you know those people around the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him were experiencing because of his own. Uh, divine character uh, of his own pure nature and, uh, and of his own pristine character so I mean these are just some some very simple uh, simple examples about you know the the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him mm-hmm. and uh, um, you know regarding his grandfather um, Abdul Muttalib who took care of him after his mother passed away how was his uh, treatment towards the Holy Prophet or how was his uh, you know, a relationship with him? And how did he, um, in terms of respect as well, how did he respect him? Um, again, obviously, it was it was very, it was a tragedy um, that the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was orphaned at a very young age. In other words, he lost both his father and his mother. Um, however, then the grandfather of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he took the Holy Prophet, uh, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, under his wing and under his care. And we see that, again, there were so many different uh, uh, examples of how the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, uh, was shown uh, respect um, by uh, Abdul Muttalib. You know, there's, there's such a, a beautiful incident. Um, you know, it, it, it actually gets one very emotional where the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, uh, expressed his love for his, his grandfather mm-hmm. and, and hugged him. And the grandfather hugged him back and, you know, both of them um, were out of, out of emotions. They were shedding tears. And this was the, the love that they held for each other. And that's why when his grandfather passed away, uh, again, when the Holy Prophet was uh, at a young age, it, it was uh, a great tragedy, um, and it was very hard for him. Um, so this was just a very, a very simple example of how the Holy Prophet had love for his grandfather, and vice versa, the grandfather had love for the Holy Prophet. And as I just mentioned, that wherever uh, his grandfather would go, he would take the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, with himself, he would ensure that you know he was protected. He w- would ensure that he was safeguarded. He was sure he would ensure that he was taken care of. Um, so this is the way again that uh, uh, Abdul Muttalib uh, took care of his uh, beloved grandson. Hmm. I mean, I think the thing with that is that uh, usually, I mean, if you look at in Asian culture, the respect and uh, honor usually is the reverse way so you as being the grandfather would expect more respect and honesty um, from your grandchild as such mm. but you know the way that you've described it so beautifully is that uh, this relationship between the Holy Prophet peace and blessings be upon him and his grandfather uh, uh, Abu Muttalib yeah, is that it's actually reciprocal yes absolutely absolutely it's it's almost uh, like you know, of of equals yes as such. and and that's that's the example that um that they taught us as well mm-hmm. that uh, you know as the holy prophet even mentioned in one tradition that 
you know, uh, if you are, if you show mercy to those that are young, then God Almighty will ultimately show mercy to you. Mm-hmm. So this is a way that the Holy Prophet even trained the Muslims as well, that, you know, it should not only be that the children are showing respect to the parents or the grandparents, it should also be reciprocal, as you have so rightly stated, so that there's a very harmonious society that is built. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and that's mm-hmm. the true nature of, of the religion of Islam. But of course, obviously, this can be expounded <laughs> to mm-hmm. a greater detail. Mm-hmm. But I think this should, this should suffice in regards mm-hmm. to the treatment that they show to one another, the love and mm-hmm. affection that they show to one another. Mm-hmm. Now, according to his uncle, Abu Talib, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, demonstrated unique qualities, I mean, even at that early stage of childhood. I mean, how did he describe the Prophet's character and behavior in general? Um, again, <coughs> as, uh, as I mentioned, that after the Holy Prophet's grandfather passed away, um, you know, it was, it, was a, it was a shock and it was uh, a difficult uh, time for the Holy Prophet. But uh, then Hazrat uh, Abu Talib took the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, under his wing and under his care. And you see, the, the relationship between uncle and nephew again is so beautiful. Um, not only did he find the qualities of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, um, to be, you know, of high standard, but we can even... Um, gorge from this that because the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him lived with Abu Talib and Abu Talib's son mm-hmm. Ali was one of the very first Muslims and the reason yeah. for that was was because Hazrat Ali first hand had experienced the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him's noble character and noble traits you see the thing is that there's there's two aspects to a person's life there's one where he's, you know, out in, in the open, there's his, his sort of social life, and, and sometimes he has to be a little bit more careful mm-hmm. when he's out in, in the public eye, we can see. But there's also a life that he has at home. Mm-hmm. And sometimes an individual may have a different lifestyle outside and a different lifestyle inside. But the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, whatever he showcased in his home, that's what he displayed outside, and that's why ultimately Hazrat Ali became one of his very first companions. And then we know that even <coughs> when the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, um, was commissioned by God Almighty as a prophet of God, Hazrat Abu Talib stood by him. Mm-hmm. And it was to the degree that even when there was a boycott that happened against the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, and his household, uh, Abu Talib also, um, you know, received the end of that. And when they were pushed into the valley of uh, of uh, uh, Abu Talib, um, where you know there was there was a total social boycott of the Holy Prophet mm. and his family members. You know, a very an, another again a great tragedy struck when Abu Talib uh, passed away, mm. um, and also the Holy Prophet's wi- beloved wife Khadija passed away. So what I mean to say is that from that, you know, that time when Abu Muttalib left the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, and then he was taken under the wing and under the care of Abu Talib, again his unique qualities were you know shown every single day. 
Mm-hmm. And the fact of the matter is that, <clears throat> again, we see that, that love and expression that Abu Talib had for the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon mm-hmm. him. That, uh, you know, even when he became a prophet, Abu Talib could not, it seems, that he could never go against the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, because he had seen him, mm-hmm. you know, from, from his childhood. And that's that's the beauty about it. That it shows Abu Talib's uh, eagerness and Abu Talib's, um, we can say, desire to protect the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was there because he had experienced the Holy Prophet's great qualities as a child. Mm, excellent. Well, always a pleasure uh, to have you on the show, uh, Imam Rabib. Thank you very much for joining me on this afternoon or joining us this afternoon on the Drive Time Show. Thank you so much for having me. As salamu alaykum. Peace be upon you. Thank you. 0208-687-7878 if you want to join in the conversation by all means please call in uh, or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK um, it brings to mind yeah, we're talking about the character um, <coughs> so just relate to us this uh, incident because uh, you actually mentioned it right at the top of the this topic right that the character and nature of the Holy Prophet peace and blessings be upon him even before prophethood was recognized by his enemies so what's this incident about the uh, uh, even his enemies recognizing yes so uh, there's a verse in the Holy Quran which mentions that um, have you not seen that I lived a lifetime before you mm-hmm. meaning that you know my claim to prophethood is one thing but look at my life before my claim Mm-hmm. Did you see any blemish in it? Did you see any fault? Mm-hmm. So that was the that was the kind of a standard we set for for prophets. Right. You know, you look at their life before they claim to be a prophet, because once they claim to be a prophet, then obviously people can say, "Oh no, this that that." I don't want to follow you. But even before he his claim to prophethood, um, there was a there was a um, uh, there was a delegation sent to um, I think Abyssinia uh, and. Uh, what happened that one of the enemies of the Holy Prophet, uh, his name was um, Abu Sufyan, mm-hmm. he was uh, there as well. And the king of Abyssinia, he called him uh, to inquire about this prophet. Who is this new prophet who is claiming to be in, in, in Saudi Arabia? So he spoke to him. He asked him a few questions like, uh, how is he? What, what does he do? What's your relation to him? And on every question, uh, he he was not able to give any negative answer, <laughs> negative even answer. though they were at war at that time. Mm-hmm. They were at war at that time, and then he asked him, uh, like I mentioned earlier, that have you has this person have you ever witnessed him lying? Mm-hmm. And he said, I can't say no. He mm-hmm. said no, I've never seen him lie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he asked, you know, do usually rich people join him or poor people? He said, you're usually the poor people. And then a few more questions, and then it, through this questioning. The king understood that the, all these qualities and all the all the tick boxes which are being ticked here mm-hmm. are of of prophets. Yeah. So he, uh, you know, uh, kind of you could say I don't know his intention, but he accepted the holy prophet Muhammad mm. to be a prophet, mm-hmm. and you know the the testimony was given by his enemy. Enemy. Yeah. You know. I mean, another interesting in- incident regarding the veracity of the holy prophet's nature. Uh, even before prophethood, is that um, uh, also involved another one of his worst enemies at the time, yeah. uh, Abu Jal, who was a chief of Mecca. Now, once a man from the tribe of uh, Quraysh came 
to Mecca, complaining that Abu Jahl had bought some camels from him without paying him back. Now, when the Arashi man asked people to help him, they referred him to the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, intending to stir up an argument, which is natural, right? Mm. Uh, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings uh, be upon him, went to Abu Jahl's house and asked him to give the Arashi money's, uh, man's money uh, that he owed him. Abu Jahl immediately came back with the money, uh, his face looking extremely pale and timid. The disappointed Quraysh blamed Abu Jahl with sarcasm later on. However, Abu Jahl replied, Woe unto you all! As soon as I heard the knock on my door, I heard a terrifying sound which filled me with awe. When I looked to see what it was, it was the most colossal and vicious camel I have ever seen towering over my head. By Allah, if I had delayed and refused it, it would have devoured me alive. So, you know, these incidents just mm. underline um, just the, the pure nature of yeah. the Holy Prophet. That's also, you know, a vision where uh, there, there was no actual camels. But yeah. because of the awe of the Holy Prophet... And, and uh, you know, the, the, they were scheming to embarrass the Holy Prophet that mm -hmm. obviously he will ask, you know, the greatest person in Makkah to give him money. He'll say no, he will be embarrassed. Mm -hmm. But what happened when he asked for the money, ha trying to help that poor man? Abu Jahl was, you know, he was, <laughs> he he was scared. Exactly. He was scared. He's <laughs> like, it was as if I saw two camels standing on his sides <laughs> about to attack me. Yeah. You know, that, that shows how the uh, Allah Almighty supported him. Mm -hmm. Even mm -hmm. in front of the greatest, so-called greatest man right. in Makkah, um, the Holy Prophet was not scared, mm -hmm. peace be upon him, was yeah, not scared, and exactly. rather it was the opposite. Well, we're joined by our next guest of today, uh, Imam Raja Bahan, who is a professor and lecturer at uh, Jamia UK. Asalaamu Alaikum, peace and blessings be upon you, Imam Raja Bahan. Thank you very much for joining us uh, on the Drive Time Show today. Wa alaikum Islam and thank you very much for having me on your show. It is always a pleasure to talk to you people. Uh, always a pleasure to have you on our shows. Uh, we're talking about the early life of uh, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him. I mean, can you elaborate on the circumstances that led the young Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, to live with his uncle uh, Abu Talib after the demise of his grandfather at the age of eight? Well, uh, under the circumstances and the family arrangements and the rituals of the Arab tribes, it was natural that the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Earlier on, he lost his father. Mm -hmm. Then he lost his mother at the age of six. And after two years, he lost his grandfather. And um, I must mention this thing, that his grandfather... Abdul Muttalib, he had many sons from various wives. And two of his sons, Abu Talib and Abdullah, they both were from the same mother. So that was a logical arrangement as well that Abdul Muttalib, before going away from this life, before passing away, he gave the responsibility to his son Abu Talib to look after his nephew. Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Mm. So, um, keeping in mind the arrangements of that time, keeping in mind the family ties of that time, it was the natural thing which happened with Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Mm. Um, thank you, uh, Imam uh, Raja Burhan Sahib. Uh, the, moving on, um, when uh, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, grew older, about the age of 25, 
he was married to Hazrat Khadija, his first wife. So tell us a little bit about that marriage and how how that uh, that marriage came to be and uh, how was their relationship? In fact, if we look at the life of the Holy Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam till the age of 25, as I have told you, keeping in mind a person, a poor boy, an orphan who has lost his father, mother, grandfather and looked after by his uncle, uh, from the materialistic point of view, nobody was interested in him. Yeah. But the Holy Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam right from the beginning of his um, childhood and his youth age and when he became uh, a young man there were two characteristics which were prevailing and everybody knew about them that he is the most trustworthy truthful person in the society and that is why there is a very famous incident that on a journey it was a business journey uh, Hazrat Khadija Allah Anha she sent one of her servants with the Holy Prophet Muhammad peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. And you know when the, the, the business uh, uh, completed, when the journey completed, he came back from the journey, that servant of Hazrat Khadija, he was so impressed by the character of the Prophet Muhammad peace and blessings of Allah be upon him that he praised his dealing, his character in front of Hazrat Khadija so much that led to this proposal by Hazrat Khadija to Muhammad peace and blessings of Allah be upon him which ended up in a um, in a marriage between the Prophet Muhammad and Hazrat Khadija so the point which I'm highlighting here is the noble character of Prophet Muhammad even before claiming to be a prophet that arranged this marriage between Hazrat Khadija and Muhammad peace and blessings of Allah be upon him mm. so Imam Rajabahan would it be a norm in that time, you know, 578, well, not actually 570. So let's look at that coming back. 595, roughly. We can talk 80. about 590 to 600, okay. and we can talk about. Yeah, that in that period of time, for uh, Hazrat uh, Khadija, uh, I mean, is it, was it the norm for someone of her age and her standing to take a husband like that? Well, uh, it wasn't unusual as it could have been unusual in today's time and, mm -hmm. and, and society. But, you know, the thing which is important here is that Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, reached the age of 25. And till that time he didn't receive any serious kind of proposal or he wasn't able to propose in a way seriously somebody to get married with him. So why I highlighted in the answer of previous question this point that uh, his characteristic was the main thing which attracted Hazrat Khadija Allah I must mention this thing and I think it's, the, it's a historical fact. Mm -hmm. Hazrat Khatija was at time of around 40 years old. Mm -hmm. She was a mature lady and she was previously married as well. And that ma marriage broke due to some reason. Anyhow, and she 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 had some, some children as well. So keeping all these things in mind, we have to understand this thing that uh, she was not uh, having this marriage for only wor any worldly gain. Mm -hmm. Rather, that was the pure character of the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, which 
uh, attracted her in a way which was the reason because of that Hazrat Khadija uh, liked this idea to have husband like Muhammad peace and blessings of Allah be upon him mm. yes thank you and I think uh, maybe you can highlight a little some qualities of uh, Hazrat Khadija as well uh, I mean uh, just like it's also an established fact that Hazrat Khadija was one of the most wealthy woman yeah. at the time she had really high status she had everything so when she married the holy prophet peace be upon him how did their relationship play out um, I mean in terms of she, she gave all her wealth adopting that simple lifestyle that the holy prophet had tell us a little bit about that I, I don't exactly remember on top of my mind the the, the age when Hazrat Khadija passed away but I can roughly guess that from the time of the marriage, the Holy Prophet got revelation at that age of 40, 15 years from here onwards, mm -hmm. and plus 10 more. So you can say that 40 plus 25, so she was around 65 years age when she passed away. And you know, these 25 years, they were the witness mm. of the character of Hazrat Khadija Taala Anha as well. You, you you must remember this thing and we must narrate this thing again and again that the Prophet Muhammad peace and blessings of Allah be upon him when he became Prophet, even before that but especially when he became Prophet all the wealth which was possessed by Hazrat Khadija anha, with the permission of Hazrat Khadija he distributed among poor people and mm -hmm. whenever he was in need he, he sacrificed that money and Hazrat Khadija never complained about any of these matters. I mean, on one hand, we are talking about one of the richest women of that time. On, on And on the other hand, we are talking about she became wife of the prophet of the time and the prophet spent all the money in the way of Allah Almighty and she was always standing with him. Mm -hmm. This is noble character of Hazrat Khadija. And I think we must also mention this thing when Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he received his first revelation that was in a way spiritually very sensitive time for the Prophet Muhammad peace and blessings of Allah be upon him and when he narrated that incident to Hazrat Khadija she stood there like a firm woman and she gave the witness which is a witness which will remain shining till the end of this world she gave witness that I give this oath that I know you very well you are the righteous person. You never harmed anyone. So this message has to be from the Creator and you cannot lie about the Creator. So this was the the amazing character of Hazrat Khadija Raziyallah Ta'ala Anha, mm -hmm. a steadfast, a humble, caring wife of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Mm. Uh, very well said, Imam Rajabahan. Thank you very much for joining us this afternoon on the Drive Time Show. Thank you for giving us your time. You're always welcome. Thank you very much. Bye. Assalamualaikum. O two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight or tweet us at voiceofislam.co.uk. And I think you know it's very well that we highlight the status of the Holy Prophet's wife because it's the context also of the time, and that's yeah. what I want to highlight. Because if you think about it, it's very easy for us. Because, say, for instance, here uh, in the, our community, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, we had the forerunner. And the forerunner is the promised Messiah. You know, may Allah be pleased with him. 
and all those who have come after the promised Messiah, the other Khalifas, yeah, we're now uh, currently under the auspices of the fifth Caliph, yeah, His Holiness Mirza Masrur Ahmad. So it's very easy for us to see the message and understand and see those examples which have gone before us. But can you imagine at the time of, you know, before prophethood and for Hazrat Khadija to recognize the purity and the nobility of his, you know, the Holy Prophet and actually say, look, you know what, I'm all in. Yeah. I mean, yeah. these are the two things we're trying to connect as well, that look at the situation and the circumstances of Saudi Arabia at that time. Mm -hmm. One of the worst places described yeah. by historians as well, that, you know, like all kinds of immorality was being done. In that place, a prophet, a, a, a young child is born. Mm -hmm. He has, from the beginning, miraculous things happening to him. Uh, his, his heart is purified. Not just being born into that, right? But also having, you know, that trauma. And I think uh, yeah. our first guest, Imam Masood, is saying, you know, normally if you lose your parents at such a tender age yeah. and then you go into care, you don't even know how uh, your relatives are going to care for you, how you are. You have the, you know, the grief of that. But to be bulletproof against that, <laughs> right, to be shielded by God Almighty and to know that, really yeah. intrinsically that you know you are divine right mm. not, you, not you, and the, you have a purpose not only the demise of his parents uh, i mean maybe some people don't know this but he had four boys mm -hmm. uh, he had eight children i think or maybe uh, some say eight some a bit more but he had eight children four boys they all passed away at, at very very young ages mm. couple of months or even days and uh, you know that's later on when he's a prophet, but despite that, the fact that he's a prophet, losing four children yeah. is is so uh, so difficult. Actually, it's, one woman it's, yeah, she, it's so she destroying. came up to him, mm. and uh, the woman's son died in one of the wars, and she was like crying and screaming. And the Holy Prophet said that you know, be patient, show patience. That mm -hmm. Allah loves patience. Mm -hmm. She said that how do you, what do you know about patience? What do you know I'm going through? Yeah, and the Holy Prophet obviously. Keeping in mind the situation, didn't say anything because he doesn't need to show off that. Or oh, I, yeah. I, I, it's I happened went to me, this, right? Yeah. yeah. But he stayed quiet and um, just uh, you know made sure that the woman was okay. But imagine what what if you said this to someone today, he'd be like, "You don't know what I've been through. I've been yeah. this, 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 this." This is all about. But this me. is like the patience, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the patience and the humility of the Holy Prophet. Exactly. And we see this from the beginning until the end of his life. Mm. Um, I mean, this, uh, yeah, we've 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 just highlighted just a fraction of the occurrences in the Holy Prophet, uh, peace and blessings be upon him, his early life. They show why God revealed uh, the verse that was read at the start of the show, which was, "Verily, you have the Prophet of Allah, an excellent model." For he who fears Allah and the last day and who remembers Allah much. Uh, so that's uh, chapter 33, verse 22. Now, as his life progressed, he went through uh, every difficulty and life trial imaginable from extreme persecution and the death of his children, as uh, Usman mentioned, uh, to wars, famine and eventual success and becoming the leader of all the Arabian Peninsula. Now, if Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, had had an easy and comfortable life, would his amazing character as a young child and young man have been as noteworthy? Um, his being called an excellent model may well 
uh, induce scoffs from those with underprivileged upbringings that they cannot be held accountable to those expectations that the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, put on people to be their best selves. If the people he brought the message of Islam to had been already moral, decent and compassionate people, would their transformation after accepting Islam have been so shocking? There it is. I mean, mm. that's that's the thing. You know, we, we keep on trying to talk about the context, but, you know, there is the purity of the Holy Prophet. But we're coming to the end of the show. Um, a few thank yous. Thank you to my co-host, uh, Usman Manan. Uh, thank you to the producers of the show today, uh, Jamila Bryant, Fahana Khan, uh, and Hafi Zafir. And with that, this was Monday's edition of the Drive Time Show. Peace and blessings be upon you. Uh, please tune in to tomorrow's edition of the Drive Time Show.